Welcome back. It's been a couple of weeks since we've put out an episode. Uh, I think our last one was the live podcast, which was, you know, about twice the length of a normal corner kick podcast. So, it, you know, we're doing you guys a favor, giving you enough time to sort of digest all the information that we unloaded to you uh, on that one. But no Nick tonight. He's uh, adjusting back to life uh, down south. Instead, Caleb... Uh, joins us from the west coast so it's a it's a balmy uh you know tuesday evening his time um well i guess it's is it, is it evening there yeah i guess it's evening there 5 45 yeah, evening. Five, 5 45 yeah well caleb back in back in california um where none of the games that we're going to talk about took place um although you know, as much as I, I feel like I, I complain a lot about having to wake up for Arsenal games at like seven fifteen when they have that seven, you know, that seven thirty a.m. slot on the East Coast. But I can't imagine being a West Coast fan, or in the case of this past weekend, a West Coast United or City fan, and having to yeah. wake up at four thirty or four fifteen to watch your team choke a lead against its rivals. So, um, yeah, you know, I guess it could so... always be worse. Yes, so I, I was not able to watch the game live due to it being at 4.30 a.m. And the fact that I think... You're also not a United or City fan. Yeah, so. yeah. I'm not, it would have it it been a lot of effort, I think, to get... Like, it's understandable. And also, I think um, my, my girlfriend might have killed me if I'd woken her up at 4.30 a.m. to turn on a soccer game. But that's neither here nor there. But it certainly was, I think... Um, a pretty high quality weekend or few days of, of soccer. There, there have been fixtures basically every day between, you know, the FA Cup, the league, um, and, you know, some other cup competitions around Europe as well. And so I think we have a lot of, you know, tasty matchups to, to dive into today. Let's start then with the first one chronologically, which was that 7.30 a.m. Eastern time, you know, afternoon Sunday or afternoon Saturday rather game between Man City and Man United obviously you know United are playing some of their best football uh, that they've played really in the last I don't know five years at the moment over the last 10 games but Man City are still Man City and they should have been eager to atone for a 2-0 loss to Southampton of all teams playing like a fairly full-strength squad in the Carabao Cup midweek. City go up 1-0 after the introduction of Jack Grealish at halftime. Uh, De Bruyne with a nice little vintage Kevin De Bruyne move. And uh, after that, though, it was really all united. And the introduction of, I think, a, a couple players. First, Alejandro Garnacho uh, for United, who's quietly had a pretty good season um, you know, for someone who's still very much under the age of 20, he changed the game. Um, and and then, um, you know, once United got that first goal, it was really all United for the next 15 or so minutes, despite a late Man City surge. So uh, Fernando, Bruno Fernandes scored um, the, the equalizing goal in the 78th minute. Four minutes later, Marcus Rashford continued to stay red hot uh, off a nice assist from Garnacho. And at the end of the day, United outchanced 
Man City two to one and they outscored them two to one. So a very good day at the office for the Reds, who are now quietly, um, you know, with a game in hand on Newcastle, tied with Newcastle for third and a point behind Man City for second. So big game, I think, for for both of these teams who are trending in very different directions right now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of of storylines to sort of get into here. First being, you know, the last time these two teams came together, um, Manchester City beat them, what was it, six to three with a hat trick each from um, Holland and Foden. I think today, you know, you saw despite City having, you know, or the other day, 71% possession, they only had, you know, 0.65 XG compared to um, Man U's 1.72. So I think it was definitely Man U who proved to be, you know, the more clinical. I think there were some doubts, um, certainly after, you know, a game like that 6-3 or the 4-0 loss to Brentford about, you know, the Ten Hag reign. Um, but since he was able to sort of excise the cancer that is um, Cristiano Ronaldo from the squad, they have had, you know, fairly superb form. And as you said, are really, you know, in some ways, right back in the title race um, in, in a lot of ways. I also think it's a testament to some of Ten Hag's man management over this period. Um, I think, you know, with both Rashford, who he's, you know, found the best form out of, um, even after sort of leaving him out of the team, you know, a week or two ago. Um, and similarly with, with Garnacho, um, who also, I think, came under criticism from um, Bruno Fernandes even, um, in the press for lacking, you know, the appropriate work rate for an 18-year-old who, you know, has by no means proven himself. Um, and he's certainly, I think, grown into his role. And it sounds like he's been training better as well. Um, on the city side of things, I mean, this city team is probably undergoing, you know, one of its worst stretches of form um, quietly under the Guardiola reign. I know that they, you know, have two wins over Chelsea, um, in their last five games, but they also have, you know, a disappointing 1-1 draw against Everton, that 2-0 loss against, you know, at the time, um, you know, bottom of the table, Southampton and the FA Cup. And then this um, loss to, you know, their rivals in, you know, the Manchester Derby. I think Holland, right, hasn't scored um, in 2023 yet for City. Um, yeah, he's I mean, on a, a rare three-game goal drought. Uh, yeah, but which, I, which I mean for him though, when he was averaging, you know, over a goal a game, is 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 quite significant. And I think um, I don't know exactly what has shifted in this squad. Um, I know that their you know defense um, has definitely looked a lot different than it did earlier in the season. I mean, we've remarked on the fact that Cancelo, um, who started this game. Um, hasn't quite recaptured the form or the minutes for City since the World Cup. Um, but this is definitely a form Man U team against a, a City team where I, I don't know um, what what has changed um, that has sort of made them less imperious than they, they have been for much of the rest of this season. Yeah, and I'm not totally sure either because, as always, you know, their team is worth half a billion dollars every time, you know, they set foot on the pitch. I do think there's been a little bit of a drop off in the form of, um, you know, their outside backs, whether that's Cancelo or, uh, you know, Nathan, or it's not Nathan Walker, <laughs> Kyle Walker. Um, they have just both been, I think a little bit less productive in terms of 
the numbers that they put up, but also they've just been less effective on the pitch. And, you know, going with the center back pairing of Akanji and Nathan Ake was very interesting to me as well. Obviously, John Stones and Ruben Diaz are both out injured still, though I think they're both sort of making their way back. But, you know, Imeric Laporte, I think, gives something different to this team. Uh, Pep really does seem enamored with Nathan Ake, who, in fairness, has been pretty good over the majority of this year. Um, you know, he completed over 100 passes in this game, but I don't think that they have had quite the dominating effect, at least since the World Cup break that they had before. Uh, meanwhile, I still think this is a very flawed United team. You know, Luke Shaw is not going to be a sort of above average center back for for long. And unfortunately, I think uh, this Sunday we're going to see Arsenal take on United at the Emirates looking for revenge for their only loss of the season. And that's going to be a very different challenge. Um, and, you know, the players who really played well in this game, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who's been linked with a move away and has, you know, made a handful of Premier League appearances this season, um, you know, Fred, they're sort of the volatile type, um, you know, and we've, we have not seen them produce consistent runs of good form ever. Um, at at United, and by consistent, I mean for more than what, half a season. So United are obviously on a, a remarkable run right now. Beating City certainly is the uh, biggest, I think, result for them on this season. But I do think it's only going to take one or two bad results, and they will fall back down to earth. And you know they've got a midweek game this week, which Arsenal do not. They play Crystal Palace, which is a makeup of the uh, the Queen's Death games um they play palace uh away tomorrow they play arsenal away on sunday then it's uh they they have the i mean maybe not luxury uh they have the challenge of being in the efl cup semifinals they have a home and home with nottingham forest uh sandwiched around a, a matchup with reading and then of course they have barcelona in the europa league so it's going to be uh very difficult for them i think to manage all of these games especially without necessarily bringing anyone in i don't really think that we've heard of them being interested in that many players uh on the transfer market which is no but they've all they also have already spent a lot if anything there have been some rumors yeah i mean you know you mentioned juan basaka but of them offloading um some players like even there have been rumors of of harry Maguire's exit which i think are probably exaggerated but certainly i think it says something if you know Luke Shaw is starting over both Maguire and Martinez in this game I think the one caveat to this win of course is the fact that the first goal was egregiously offsides um, oh yeah obviously for, it's, for, it's for, terrible. Or, sorry, the, the equalizer for me yes for, for yeah. goal, where there was a through ball where Marcus Rashford was very offsides he did not physically touch the ball um, but he definitely interfered with the play um, in several ways, basically by running alongside the ball, which is functionally having possession, getting in the way of a kanji, being able to make a challenge, and also, you know, through his movement, shifting the defense. While it was Fernandez who kind of struck the ball um, into the back of the net, um, I, for one, um, was, you know, watching the replay of the game, was incredibly surprised that that was, you know, allowed to stand. Um, because it didn't really seem all that controversial and offsides call to me. Yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, it, it was a terrible interpretation of the rule, because I think a lot of the time, the way we see that rule brought up is, 
when a shot comes in from like outside the box and there's a player who's offside. Yeah, the, the rule being the interference. Of, yeah. yeah, yeah, the rule being interference or or you know having an effect on the play. However, it's phrased in the PGMOL. Um, there's no reason that that goal should have stood because otherwise you could in theory just have players like decoy themselves up the field. Um, it, it definitely shouldn't have stood. Um, I, for one, as an Arsenal fan, was not necessarily complaining that it stood, um, but it was definitely the bad. It was definitely a bad call. No, um, no. I think so, I, my point is yeah. like you know you 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 take what's given to you, right? Of course, for sure. Um, but I think there's you know many universes where this game probably ends more like a one-one draw, where we say that man, you were sort of good money for the draw. Yeah, um, I agree. And and for the record, this is the first time Man City has lost two games in a row since August 7th, 2021, when they lost in the Community Shield and then to Spurs on the opening day of the season two years ago. So this is uh, as close to a slump as I think we've ever seen, really, from, from Guardiola's Man City. But Well, uh, I think... It, it, I think, yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any easier for them because they've got Spurs on. They've got Spurs in the league on Thursday, then a, a trip to Wolves, then Arsenal, Spurs, Villa, and Arsenal. So that's a pretty uh, important stretch of seven games. Uh, obviously, one of those Arsenal games is an FA Cup uh, match, but pretty important stretch of games because because of this loss, Arsenal are eight points clear. Um, City and Arsenal do play each other twice more in the league. So, and Arsenal have not beaten City in a game that mattered. Um, in a long, long time, probably since the FA Cup semifinal in maybe 20, spring of 2017, I want to say, would be the last time Arsenal beat Man City in like a legitimate fashion. So, um, but yeah, big win for the the Red Devils. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens for these uh, Manchester teams. Before we move on to the next rivalry game, I want to shout out briefly uh, the legend himself, Kawaru Mitoma who spent a good 90 minutes uh, on Saturday just beating the crap out of Trent Alexander-Arnold. Uh, it was really child's play. And you think about the, the fact that he's a guy who was playing Japanese university soccer like a couple of years ago. Pretty nuts. Um, Liverpool got tonked by Brighton, by the way, 3-0. And there's no doubt in my mind that Brighton are a better team than Liverpool are at the moment. Um, but we don't need to talk too much about that game. It was just uh, amusing to watch this team get you know, so thoroughly outplayed. Yeah, I but, mean, I think there, there were lots of other interesting results that day. The Brighton game, Southampton beating Everton is obviously very important for... <laughs> sorry, James uh, Ward-Prowse beating Everton. Sorry, sorry. yeah, James Ward-Prowse um, is responsible for, like, all of Southampton's points with, what, two more set-piece-related goals? Yeah. One, his... one of them was a free kick, um, at uh, least. One, yeah, one of them was a free kick. The other one was... Uh, off a through ball but okay. yeah i mean as it's great you can you can go back and watch the video as soon as uh as soon as anthony gordon commits the foul outside the box there's a video you can see jordan pickford just like kicking the post in frustration because like he knows what's coming um and james ward prowse continues to be the best free kick taker of all time uh in the Premier i think League he's on his way to beating beckham's uh Premier league free kick record um but yeah, tough tough day to be Everton when most of your relegation rivals every day is a tough doing, day to be Everton. Yeah, ba a bad day for Merseyside overall. 
Um, but perhaps we should, you know, jump jump to London on on Sunday, where your your team um, away at Tottenham put in a pretty superlative um, performance, a, a clinical performance, a performance where they probably could have, you know rung up the score even more Tottenham zero Arsenal two a rather embarrassing uh Uris Ongol a player who <laughs> seems truly broken after the World Cup final um I mean he knows he's never going to win anything with with Tottenham it seems after what a decade or more um maybe or close to a decade at the club um Bakaya Saka you know, beating, what was it, Sessegnon um, on the left flank, sending in a kind of speculative cross that um, Uris sort of flung into his own net for, for you know, lack of a better description. Uh, and then, you know, 20 odd minutes later, um, Martin Odegaard finding way too much space outside the box and drilling just a nice low shot across goal left to right. 2-0 to Arsenal, Tottenham in the mud. Arsenal, you know, playing this game after the Manchester Derby the day before, extend their lead at the top of the table um, to eight points and now sit on 47, um, having taken 47 out of uh, 54 available. A pretty impressive performance all around. I'm curious what your uh, thoughts were on this game, Nathan. Yeah, this was a lot of fun um, considering the last time Arsenal played at White Hart, or sorry, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium um, was that 3 0 loss in the spring that that ended Arsenal's chances of finishing in the top four. Um, you know, Arsenal hadn't beaten Spurs away since 2014, a game which I remember watching. Um, it was the game where Thomas Rosicki became messy for like 13 minutes and scored an absolute banger. But this was just a really good team performance, even before that soccer goal. Uh, or the the Lloris own goal, um, you know, it was really all Arsenal. Spurs played the same way they played against every, or the same way they play really against every team, which is they defend as a back seven with, you know, one of the wingers dropping in. So it really becomes a back eight. And I have to say, you know, not impressed by the team selection, not impressed by really anyone in this game, aside from maybe Hoiberg for Spurs. Um, you know, I thought it was a tough task to ask the midfield tandem of Hoiberg and and Papsar, who was making his Premier League debut, to handle a midfield three of Odegaard, Partey, and Xhaka, which has been the best midfield in the league so far, especially considering that Nketia drops back in too. So it was really, you know, 4v2 for much of this game. But look, Saka is just a much better player than either Sessegnon or Longley. Um, he beat them repeatedly down the right. Martinelli was kind of quiet in the first half and didn't really do all that much offensively, although he did uh, have a nice dribble off his back in sort of true Brazilian showboating style. Um, but Martin Odegaard was so, so good. And I think there's an argument to be made that if the Premier League season ended right now, he's probably your, he, he could very easily be your Premier League player of the year. He's certainly the best midfielder based on form alone. Um, you know, right now he scored outside the Premier the box. League player of the year is certainly a Norwegian. We'll, we'll leave it at it's that. certainly it's certainly Norwegian, and look, obviously, I think you know Holland has 21 goals through 18 league games, and that's obviously nuts. Um, but Martin Erdegaard now up to eight goals and five assists. Six of his eight goals have been away from home. Um, his average rating is a seven eight five. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, it's a really look, everyone in Arsenal played their hearts out. Uh, Ramsdale had a really good game. He was only really called into action in the second half, aside from one save that he had to make on Kulishevsky, I think, in the in the first half. Maybe it might have been Son, actually, in the first half. But this was a great win. Um, you know, I don't even think Arsenal played their best soccer for the second half. They were up 2-0 and Spurs hadn't really threatened all that much. Um, and yeah, look, a win at, at White Hart, or a win at, a win away at Spurs is awesome. And, um, you know, Arsenal got into the heads of the Spurs players and the Spurs fans so much that, you know, it, it literally drove Spurs fans to madness after the game. So while I'm not necessarily endorsing that, this was a game that made me uh, very, very happy because I feel like it, it showcased the strengths of Arsenal and the weaknesses of Spurs over the 90 minutes. Yeah, well, and it's so interesting because when you look at the stats, like if you just look at the, at the stats, it would seem like it was a pretty even game. You know, XG 1.6 for Tottenham to 1.85 for Arsenal. Tottenham actually narrowly outshot Arsenal 17 to 14. Both teams had two big chances. Both teams made, you know, our, our Tottenham made 381 passes. Arsenal made 384. And yet there was no point, I think, where, where Tottenham really felt like they had, you know, control of the game. And I think so much of the difference between these two teams is the fact that this Arsenal starting 11, you know, with, you know, Gabriel Jesus in theory in Fern and Ketia is so nailed on at this point. Um, and I think this really is a team that is operating with, you know, maximum possible um, chemistry, which in a lot of ways is what you want to see from, you know, a potential championship team, not one that just can kind of muscle their way through sheer quality, but one that really, you know, plays um, pretty close to as one as possible. And I do think that is Arsenal right now, but it is very, very disappointing um, for Spurs, who I'm not really sure where this team is right now. I, I have a question. Do you know if Eves, you know, Basuma has been injured? Or I'm just curious why, you know, even at with Bentancourt absent, why we saw, you know, Saar over Basuma. I know Basuma is generally not impressed since his transfer from Brighton over the summer, but do you know any more about that particular choice in the midfield? I mean, he played a full 90 in the first game back from the World Cup break. He played 80 minutes against Villa after that and then didn't play, um, I guess, in the in the previous game, which was, or the previous two games, rather. Um, one was an FA Cup tie and the other was a win against Palace. So I'm not totally, I'm not totally sure why. And regardless, I think this, I mean, Look, a better functioning Spurs team would not be reliant on a choice between Basuma and Sar for that second midfielder. And frankly, I know Conte has his system and, and pretty much hasn't deviated from it at the top flight level in 15 years. But it could have been, I just thought there was a lack of pragmatism about the way he set up this Spurs team against an Arsenal team that, you know, I think Newcastle sort of paved the showed the blueprint for lesser teams and how to play against Arsenal. And that's, you know, you can't leave three men up high because Arsenal are just, there's just too many players who come forward. Um, so I was a bit surprised about that. I was surprised Perisic didn't start, frankly, over Doherty uh, or Sessegnon. They could have put him on either side. And um, yeah, I mean, the depth of You didn't of think Emerson Royale was fighting for a start? Here. Definitely not. But I the depth of this Spurs team is just so bad. And yes, they got Kulishevsky back and Richarlison is, you know, 
coming off the bench. But you look at this bench, man, and the players they didn't bring on, Davidson Sanchez, Oliver Skip, Emerson Royale, um, even the players they did bring on, <laughs> Brian Heal, uh, Ben Davies, like there is just uh, not a lot of options. And frankly, I know Arsenal's bench is pretty weak as well. But at the same time, Arsenal's first 11 minus Gabriel Jesus has the team at 15, two and one with 47 points. So I think, right, Conte, I, think, I, think, I, think I think, I think, I think Conte is probably done after this yeah, year. I agree. I also think that's kind of what I was trying to get at with the difference where it's not that, you know, the Spurs squad doesn't have, you know, two or three players in every position. It's that there is no, you know, for some positions, mainly like wide backs, center midfield, uh, maybe even center back, you know, there isn't a clear, you know, hierarchy of who's like their guy in the big game that's always going to start. And I think when you haven't established, you know, your best team, it suggests either that your team is full of rather average players or everybody's kind of out of form and no one's really kind of staking their claim. And neither of those are sort of good situations to be in um, if you have, you know, large aspirations as, as Tottenham do, you know, regardless of whether they can actually live up to them or not. Yeah. I think that's uh, I think that's very fair. And um, for the first time, I think going into this game, um, I didn't think Arsenal would lose. Like I, I felt pretty confident that Arsenal would get at least a point away um, against Spurs. And even in the games that Spurs have won, they just have not, I mean, four nil aside um, at palace. I, I just haven't been fully impressed. Um, it's been a big regression year for really Son, Kane and Kulishevsky. Um, You know, Harry Kane does have 15 goals, but he has been doing it basically single-handedly. So yeah, I think, I think it's been tough that Richarlison yeah. who was, you know, their big money offensive signing. And I'm not sure that was really warranted. Um, you know, has been has been injured and been a bit of a bit part player um, this year. I think it's been tough to, you know, they've missed Kulishevsky, who they had in this game, but he was, you know, really imperative in their, you know, strong form at the end of last year. But more than anything, I think it has been the, the rather shocking drop off um, in output from Son um, on that left flank. Um, but that 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 can happen, and he probably also you know overperformed a little bit last year, and so perhaps I mean really the last the two really the last two years, right? And I think it's sort of similar to what we're seeing from Mo Salah, I think, at Liverpool this year, which is you can only carry the offensive load of your team for so long before there's a little bit of regression. So, um, yeah, it's not a surprise that those downturns in form individually have seen their team suffer respectively. And I mean, Spurs are not out of the running for Europe. You know, they're still in fifth place, but they are now with one more game played. They are now five points off of the Champions League. Um, and they're closer to, you know, they're equidistant from Liverpool and Chelsea in, in ninth and 10th as they are to fourth. So that seems to be like the first or I guess the second schism in in the league standings right now. However, with all that said, um, there was another big derby game. It was it was good. It was a good Sunday for soccer, actually. You know, some weekends you get nothing, and then some weekends everything comes at once. Um, because we had all the way from Riyadh uh, a cup final edition of the Classico, and much like Arsenal 
Spurs, this game was over relatively quickly and not the way that I was expecting it to go at all, Caleb. I don't know if you were anticipating Barcelona being as ascendant as they were in this game, but it was uh, it was a it was a tremendous performance from Barcelona, who won three one. Um, but you know, the only goal they conceded was a sort of garbage time goal. Uh, Pedri looked great. Gavi looked great. Lewandowski scored twice. Um, and then had once, uh, had one ruled out and, uh, just a very good game for a team that on paper, uh, has maybe a little bit less quality or certainly a little bit less consistency than their Madrid counterparts. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the super cup is in many ways, not, you know, that important a competition. Um, it's, you know, the equivalent of the community shield in England and, because of you know money mainly they've turned it into a kind of winter tournament um, mini tournament um, in Riyadh uh, where the you know winner and runner up um, of La Liga and the winner and runner up of the Copa del Rey play in sort of a four-man tournament um, both teams you know labored a little bit to get to the final having to win um, in penalties um, but I think I, okay, I think I expected Barcelona to win this game. I mean, Madrid have been, um, in rather poor form since the return from the world cup. I mean, it took them, as I said, penalties, um, to beat, you know, Valencia. And then they also lost in their last league game, um, uh, Villarreal sort of two to one. Um, I think. Barcelona also have had, I think, a bit of a, you know, up and down return, but in general um, came into this game with better form. And I think in a lot of ways, um, Xavi got kind of the tactics of this game right. I mean, Barcelona have had some issues with having kind of a consistent attacker after, you know, Dembele and Lewandowski with, you know, Ferran Torres, Fati. Um, Rafinha all struggling, I think, to really like claim their spot. Um, and so he went with the four midfield um, formation with Gavi kind of playing, you know, a left winger at times or like a left center midfield at other times, kind of to counterbalance Madrid's four midfield, four midfield approach with sort of Valverde playing that weird kind of box to box winger situation. Um, but I think this is a game where Modric, Kreis, um all looked very old and leggy where Kamavinga looked really uncomfortable um, playing, you know, as a slightly more kind of defensive midfielder. You know, I think Madrid have really struggled in these past few games in part because they missed Chuameni um, and he was hauled off at halftime um, because even though he didn't get a yellow, it looked like um, the game was bypassing him a little bit. Um, but this was, I think, probably in many ways, Barcelona's best performance of the year where Everyone seemed to work well together. We had sort of our full complement of players. Christensen and Kunde looked great as a center back pairing. And Araujo um, is kind of um, in, in a similar way to sort of like Ben White's role um, at Arsenal. You know, he kind of gets forward, but really is more about tucking in a little bit to really allow the left back, in this case, Valde, to really be the sort of more attacking of the two. Um, and it just worked really well. And all the goals were were really slick. And we really did have the game, you know, well put away um, by halftime. So I was very pleased um, overall. And I hope 
that now that we have, you know, a three-point cushion in La Liga as well, um, we can take, you know, this type of performance and the confidence that comes with it, um, both to that competition and to what is shaping up to be, I think, a really interesting match um, against Man U in the Europa League as well. Yeah, and I think this, um, you know, I think Barcelona just looked a little bit fitter in this game than Madrid. And I don't know if that's because... There certainly younger. Was some, yeah, <laughs> certainly younger. Um, but the age and also maybe the World Cup hangover, like, look, Luka Modric did play, you know, all the way into the World Cup semifinals um, or the World Cup quarterfinals, sorry. Uh, no, all the way into the World Cup semis and then the World Cup uh, bronze final. Um, so he played, you know, the full length of that of that winter break. Um, you know, Kamavinga, for some reason, seems to be in the doghouse a little bit right now um of of Ancelotti and I'm not totally sure about that. I think a fully fit um you know a fully fit first 11 for Real Madrid is probably a little bit better than a fully fit full strength 11 for Barcelona, but I do think that in terms of squad depth and frankly with the amount of money Barcelona have spent this should be true um you know just ipso facto, but um Barcelona are certainly a much deeper team and and their squad has just much more serviceable depth options. Even the even you know being able to bring on Ansu Fati, who's had a stop and start last four years, although he did score a banger the other day. He scored um, a banger in the in the semifinal of this tournament. Yeah, he did. Although he, he only got subbed on in the last. No, but I think you're right. I mean, this was definitely like Barcelona could pull from their full team, which is not something we've really been able to say, you know, for most of this season. Meanwhile, Madrid. Are missing, you know, Alaba. Um, I think, you know, Mendy uh, has been out of form. Chuamani, yeah, um, Chuamani, who's who's really good, obviously. Right, and then at at right back, I think you know Carvajal is is definitely regressing. Um, you know, Lucas uh, Vazquez is also not like a true right back. And then I think the issue with Madrid squad. Um, is that there's a lot of players in the team that I don't think Ancelotti trusts to play, you know, soccer. Um, like you look at their bench. Um, no, I yeah, mean, but look, no, I think you're right. Bench. I think you're right, though. And like you have like Odriozola, um, who just was never good enough to really play for Madrid, and I think is now kind of stuck on probably a high wage deal where he'd probably rather just sit there than you know go back to you know Sociedad. Um, you know, Jesus. Vallejo, who's now 26 years old, and I feel like he was supposed to be, you know, like the Spanish center back to replace, you know, like Sergio Ramos, but now he just doesn't play. Um, Eden Hazard, we don't need to like talk about that. Like that's, we've, we've talked about that story before. And then, you know, Mariano Diaz, um, who's, who's 29 and also, you know, doesn't really get a look in. And so that's basically like half of their def or half of their bench. And you look at the rest, you know, like Danny Chabayos is definitely not someone who Ancelotti wants to be bringing on. Um, ideally, he's clearly like the sort of last choice center midfielder. Um, and then Marcus Asensio even, um, who I think tends to impress when he gets minutes, um, but is very rarely called upon from the beginning. And so I think, you know, they're missing some really key players. And I think this Madrid team is kind of like a basketball type team where it's really, you know, you know, like analogously like a, I don't know, like an eight man rotation is kind of how they do it. And they're having to look to their, you know, ninth and 10th and 11th men 
um, at this point in the season and it's not I, working for them. Yeah. Well, I also think that that's partly a fault of their transfer strategy, which has very much been go big or go home. And in fairness to them, they've done a really good job of sticking to that. And I think sort of avoiding um, spending themselves into debt or spending themselves into a Barcelona type situation. But you look at the players who they've brought in, um, obviously Schwameni was like close to a hundred mil. Rudiger came in on a free, which is, you know, again, I think still consistent with that kind of value. Um, you know, they've, they tied down players like uh, Benzema, Vinicius, uh, Modric to new contracts. But other than that, they have not really brought in, um, they don't really buy squad players and instead are relying on, I guess, La Fabrica's sort of washed up 78 overall factory pipeline um, of players like Odriozola, um, you know, Vallejo, who are both who are 26 and 27 now, which is kind of incredible. Um, you know, Brahim Diaz, or sorry, Mariano Diaz, who's almost 30. Um, although there was a report saying that Brahim Diaz is going to back to Madrid. Um, you which know, would be an summer. error, by the way. The best move be he ever error. made was to become a starter at AC Milan, where he gets to win um, Serie A. But correct. You, no, but the point, agree, the point is, your yeah. Point. yeah. Yeah, and and look, maybe frankly, Madrid could use uh, one more body, you know, um, especially given the fact that they are consistently competing on three fronts, and uh, yeah, and, and also the fact that you know Kamavinga and Schwameni are probably the foundation of their midfield for the future, but they will still need another midfielder, um, and I know that they are going to need another striker, obviously, because Benzema is thirty-five years old, and that's not changing anytime soon, but. You know, their transfer policy aside, I still think we're going to have a really good, uh, you know, second half of the season in La Liga. Um, although, you know, the, the La Liga, excuse me, <laughs> the La Liga season is not quite halfway through. They're a, a match week behind the Prem and all the teams that were competing in the Super Cup have a game in hand. So that's the entire or two of the top four right now. So uh, interesting stuff. You mentioned um, you mentioned Serie A briefly. Uh, just wanted to touch on a piece of history. Atalanta became the first team to score eight goals or more in a Serie A match when they really? smoked. That's never yeah. happened before? It's never happened before. I was stunned. But in fairness, you think about how rare it is for that to happen in the Prem. It happens once a season, maybe once every two seasons. It happens um, once every year, other year against Southampton. But it's still yeah, a rare five event. Yeah, yeah. It's a, or, or lesser. <laughs> and it's a rare event. Uh, but you think about you think about the sort of stereotype of Serie A as being a sort of Catanaccio defense first league. And I think that's certainly been the case for the majority of the uh, time there. And also it's, a, I think I, it seems like a very upset prone league. Like I feel like barring the golden era of Juventus teams weren't blowing teams out of the water every single game week. Like I still think there were more slog fests there than in other games, but um, yeah, so shout out Atalanta, um, who hung eight goals on Salernitana. Uh, while With Adamola also... Lukman getting like two or three. He's, I love, yeah, I love and him. missing a penalty at the same time. So it could have been that's nine, peak, man. They could have made history Syria. twice in a day. Um, but yes, enough with Serie A. Um, speaking of uh, other leagues, the Bundesliga is back well, wait, on Friday. We have to mention the Napoli versus Juventus game just briefly. Just briefly, uh, yeah. No, well, yeah. I guess while we're on Serie A, we can talk, uh, you know, Napoli Juve in a game that uh, I think let us know that I think we we know ball, if you will. 
uh, because this was just downright humiliation for Napoli. Um, frankly, I'm sorry, downright humiliation from Napoli inflicted on Juve. Um, you know, they were up 2-1 at halftime. It could have been way worse. Uh, and then, you know, this Juventus team has maybe even a thinner squad than Real Madrid. And it was really, you know, all Napoli the rest of the way. They win 5-1. Uh, Kvitsa was fantastic. Again, he had two assists and a goal. He could have had probably four assists and two goals. Victor Oshimen really looks like he benefited from the... Uh, from not playing at the World Cup break because he was injured a bit in the first half of the season. But he is just so clinical. Uh, and really, I'm surprised that United signed uh, Veghorst over him. And uh, yeah, Juve are are bad. We know this. Um, even though they're in third place, they're not a good team. Well, they're right. That was a- the whole thing. Like, we, we, we've been having this back and forth about, like, how bad are Juve? And I think it was, you know, a while ago when we were, like, yeah, we kind of had come to the agreement they're really this bad. But then they went on this run where they won somewhat miraculously and not convincingly. They had like 93rd minute winners in like four yeah, straight games. Yeah, but they won eight straight league games and they conceded zero goals in that stretch. And so magically, you know, they got themselves up into, you know, they're still trailing Napoli who have been, you know, the lights out team. But they were, you know, safely in the top four. Um, and then this really brought them back down to earth. And you can remind yourself that while they have, you know, a league best defense somehow, having only conceded 12 goals in 18 games, and that includes the five from this game, they've still only scored 27 goals, um, which is real bad. Um, and so there's still a lot to the, the Juventus are not really back. By any means, somehow they just got a lot of lucky breaks um, and it was time for someone to put the record straight and Napoli have been pretty good about doing that, you know, all season long. Yeah, no, they're the most clinical team in Serie A. Also the most fun team in Serie A. I did watch a little bit of Napoli's game today where they lost to Cremonense uh, in penalties. Uh, or rather, it, yeah, sorry, in, in uh, after extra time um, in, in the uh, Coppa Italia but they rotated their entire squad. It's Napoli's league to lose. Uh, and for, I think, the majority of our adult lives, I think we were accustomed to seeing a Juventus team that would just overcome whatever the the gap was in Serie A to win the league. And this year, I think, of the top five, of the top six, te- of the top seven teams, Napoli, AC and Inter Milan, Juve, Lazio, Atalanta, and Roma... The only team that I would think Juve is better than is Lazio um, of those seven. So a very competitive top half of Serie A. Um, and we do have a Derby della um, Maternita tomorrow or a Derby Milanese tomorrow um, in the Coppa Italia as well. Or sorry, the Italian Super Cup as well. Um, so that should be a fun one. Which is which but, is also in Riyadh. They're doing it like the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, venue aside, that's a pretty that's a pretty fun game. I don't know how seriously either of those teams will take it, but certainly always fun when Pioli and Zaghi get down to brass tacks. Um, I guess the last league to touch on is France. And despite my commitment to saying that this league is over and done with and all wrapped up, uh, PSG continue to try and prove us otherwise. Uh, they fall 1-0 to a Ren team that was down not one, but two starters uh, they actually played 
a, a totally different formation because they had two guys sent off in a uh, last minute loss to Claremont foot the, the, the match day prior. So PSG's lead over Lons at the top of league is down to three points, just one game. Um, and, you know, look, they did start Hugo Ekatike instead of Kylian Mbappe. And, you know, they did also start Warren Zaire Emery, who's 16 years old in a midfield with Vitinha. But they but, also started Messi and Dave. Yeah. And also they still lost. So it doesn't really matter. And that's, you know, a choice that Gaultier made. So that's on him. Um, so because right, who else did they have available? I oh, mean, they had everyone available. They, yeah. They brought in Hakimi, Mbappe, Fabian Ruiz, Carlos Soler, Renato Sanchez, um, you know, Fabian. Yeah. Yeah, like they had they had more talent available to them for sure. For sure. And there was also another massive scoreline this weekend with uh Monaco beating Ajaccio uh seven to one with a Ben Yetter hat trick and an Mbolo double. Um so I think Ligoon is like getting close to like the watch this space um situation, although I'm not sure I can really bring myself to watch a like Lons game, but that's, yeah, it, that's okay. also also, Ligoon is in the very interesting spot of having a league that is changing size next year because they let teams that were relegated stay up during COVID, during the COVID year. Um, so this year, they're relegating 20% of the league. So teams 17 through 20 go down. Um, shout out Angers, by the way, who have a remarkable eight points from 19 games with a negative 24 goal differential and two wins and two draws. Um, so it's very competitive, I think, in the top five or six. Uh, you know, Lille have been underwhelming this year, but in fairness, they did lose like their entire coaching staff, their entire backroom staff, and players this last offseason. So, um, you know, top five is competitive for now, uh, and the bottom four minus Angers is competitive as well. Um, and I think only two teams come up from Serie B to sort of even it out and bring it back to 18. So interesting stuff in France, although, you know, admittedly, we're only like one Lons loss away from, uh, you know, the whole thing. Well, the thing question is, are Lons going to be like our new Union, you know, for the next Well, we can't. Weeks. Speaking of Union, <laughs> speaking of Union, um, speaking of Union Berlin, we've sort of established that Bundesliga watch is off. And for good reason, you know, I think we're all pretty content with the idea that, um, you know, that it's Bayern's league to lose once more. But Union Berlin took another hit because they sold Julian Ryerson, who's been one of the best outside backs in uh, all of the top five leagues in Europe. They sold him for below market value to Dortmund today, which is a crazy move, first of all. Um, but was obviously, he like going to be out of contract? What was the? I'm not totally sure, um, but he's worth 7.8 million, and they sold him for five. Brutal. So he must he must really have wanted to go. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I guess I guess shout out there. Um, also, some transfer news: um, Pablo Sarabia for five to mil wolves, right? to Wolves for two and a half years. That's fine. Like obviously, Lopetegui. Were you writing with Lopetegui? Yeah. Right? Yeah, Lopetegui um, must have Sevilla wanted him. Is... Yeah. Right. The last mm-hmm. time Sevilla were good. Um, otherwise, it's been a kind of quiet January window. We also, talked about on, Wout on Weghorst. Le yeah, Wout Weghorst to Man U. That's wild. But uh, he's basically going to be the Luke de Jong for Man U, which, which can work. Um, but did, did Le Petit Gui manage some of these 
uh, Portuguese players when he was the, what was it, the sporting coach? And is I mean, that, was that part of the logic for hiring him, maybe? I haven't actually looked, but that would like make sense to me. I mean, I think he must have, right? Because it's like a, um, you know, it's the, it's the whole cabal. It's the Mendez cabal that sort of runs that outfit. Um, you know, they, they did draw Liverpool since he arrived and then got smoked by them today. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess that, that, that those transfers all make sense. Otherwise, it's been, again, pretty quiet. Uh, Villa signed John Duran, who's a, a 19-year-old Colombian from Chicago Fire. Uh, which is which is kind of fun if you're into the sort of MLS side of things. But again, not a whole lot of movement this January. It's almost like um, you know, with the ex- it's, it's we'll get to this final transfer in one second. But it's almost like all of these teams had so much time to evaluate their players over the winter break that they have sort of avoided the panic move so far. And I say that with the exception of the team in in sort of royal blue in London, Chelsea, who are content to just um, literally purchase every Arsenal target in existence because after months of angling for a move to the Gunners for Mikhailo Mudrik, uh, the Ukrainian winger from Shakhtar, uh, Chelsea beat Arsenal to the punch. And in a span of like 18 hours, it goes from, you know, Arsenal have submitted an offer for 95 million to Chelsea are paying 100 million plus add-ons for Mudrik. And, um, you know, I'll say it as good as Mudrik was or is, and we don't really know how good he is. And as much as I love to see his passion for Arsenal, I guess as a fan, it is insane, insane to spend a hundred million on a player with, you know, 10 or fewer champions league games of experience. And, um, you know, from a, a Ukrainian league that, has been, you know, through no fault of its own, relatively dormant um, the last little bit. So this is an insane transfer. Um, I'm torn between wanting him to do well because he seems like a nice guy, um, but also wanting this transfer to just fail because, again, Chelsea seem to have zero direction when it comes to their transfers. Uh, Very baffling stuff all around. Oh, this is insane. I mean... Chelsea have spent, I think, something like $425 million since uh, Foley took charge. Um, and to spend that much money and to still find yourself 10th um, is real bad. Um, they've definitely hit the panic. I mean, they also brought in Jao Felix on loan. He has, for like, you know, $15 million or something loan deal. He got a red card in his first appearance and will now miss the next three games. So that's an expensive uh, loan deal. Um, and Mudrik, you know, I haven't watched a lot of his highlights in part because, you know, there aren't a ton out there. That's because the guy has only made like 40 first team appearances for Shakhtar. He's only scored 12 um, goals for them. Um, he, he did play for a team called Arsenal Kiev. Um, in 2019, but maybe I'm just like not keeping up, but like, I don't know exactly what's driving like this level of hype and to pin, you know, the second half of your season on a signing like this um, is, is very not helpful to someone like Graham Potter, who's now going to feel a lot of pressure to have to make this guy fit into his team. And again, I don't think we really know how he's going to do 
I mean, in a lot of ways, he's like even less proven or he's significantly less proven than someone like Anthony, um, who I think has been fine at Man U, but I'm not sure we would say that he is like an $100 million player. And I think if he plays even up to what Anthony has given Man U, I'm not sure that's really enough to significantly change, you know, Chelsea's situation. So... (laughs) Well, did, so is is it really just the fault of like I'm, I'm this is a, this is a question like did Man U really just like set the market price for you know twenty five and under wingers like that high, or was Chelsea just so was Bowley just so committed to making a splash while I guess depriving Arsenal of a target that he just went out and did this because it it just like yeah I don't know so... I mean there there was. The Athletic did an interview with um, the Shakhtar's. Yeah, I read that. Yeah. So, I mean, like, we might have some answers there, but I, I don't honestly, like, at this point, I'm not ready to like put out a theory of like bully ball or like bullyism at Chelsea because right now it does seem just quite erratic. Um, and I do just wonder where you know, the rest of the sort of sporting staff at the club is um, because it does seem like it's very, very much driven, you know, from the top in a, if you're a Chelsea fan, I think a pretty concerning way. Um, yeah. And like, frankly, would you rather have Cody Gakpo for 40 million or Mudrick or Anthony for a hundred million? Because clearly the answer is Gakpo. Cody back. Yeah. I, in fact, I would rather take two and a half Cody Gakpo's yeah, a- over sure. Yeah, I mean, I'd rather have an entire front line of Cody Gakpo's, right? Um, (laughs) So it's no, it's 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 a bit baffling, honestly. Um, And then also, I mean, we talked about this too, um, watching, um, you know, Colwell for Brighton have an excellent game against Liverpool. The young, you know, nineteen-year-old centre back who is now rumored to be, you know, potentially even getting an England cap, and then you see you know, Chelsea spending, you know, over a hundred million combined on, you know, young French centre-backs, which isn't to say that, you know, Badia Chile or Fafana aren't good. Um, it's just that like they had someone there that clearly can, you know, like play with the big boys in the Premier League um, and would have been free. Um, and so I think <laughs> there is, right. So I think there's like a strange impulse to like spend, spend, spend. Um, rather than perhaps like a sober analysis of where we should spend um, if you're if you're Chelsea right now. Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, that's been a criticism that I've had of Chelsea for, and many people have had of Chelsea for a long time because they've had the most successful, you know, youth academy in England since, you know, the turn of the millennium, really, or certainly since the, the Roman Abramovich days. And instead they show this lovely commitment um, to their youngsters by loaning them out for eight years at a time. And look, for every... You know, for every Colwell, you get a Tomasz Kalash, who's now 29 years old and still playing in the championship. Um, I watched a bit of him today for Bristol City and thought, man, he was like a, a FIFA 11 wonder kid who you could yeah. sign um, from Chelsea. Yeah, um, and it's similar, it, like for every Lewis Baker, you get a Mason Mount. Like not everyone is going to, to pan out, but I think there are more people that could pan out than Chelsea allowed to. Yeah, without a doubt. And it does seem like they have tried to sign young at the very least in the last um, you know, six months or so. They brought in Chukomeka, they brought in Andre Santos, they brought in um Didi Fofana. Uh, you know, they're they're buying young, 
But, um, you know, you have to think that with a $450 million outlay, there's going to need to be some, you know, ROI. And they are in 10th place right now, having lost seven of their last 11 games. So, um, you know, we all know that FFP is a farce and there are very many ways to get around it. But, um, you know, you can only buy yourself out of so many, such such a deep hole, I guess. So certainly uh, something to watch there. Uh, this weekend, we have, uh, well, this week, Barcelona continue their lucky string of draws. And after nearly losing to the 18th place team in the Spanish third <laughs> tier, they then get drawn against Ad Ceuta or Adi Ceuta, who are in last place with eight points in the Spanish third tier. I was looking at the table Dude, today and I well, couldn't the find is... them. <laughs> they have two wins in 19 games and have only scored 18 goals. So naturally, some dude is going to score a Hattie uh, this well, weekend is, or this who, Thursday. Which former Barcelona B player plays for them now, right? Who's going to score a Hattie? Um, that, it'll be that man, but... Uh, they uh, did beat Elche. They did beat Elche in, uh, in the in FA the Cup. Round. In the FA Cup, what am I talking about? In the yeah, in the previous <laughs> round, <laughs> um, that would be wild. Uh, no, they have um, you know their their front line is led by a man named Jota who does not have a foot mob profile, and a man named Rodri who was a Barcelona youth player back in Let's 2011. <laughs> he scored go. seven goals for Barca B back in uh, in 2011 2012, which was a very good year for Barcelona B. By the way, um, that was he was also a former uh, Real Oviedo striker. Uh, they also have Adrian Cuevas in midfield, who you might remember from his very uh, promising stint at Cordoba 2 back in 2013, <laughs> 2014, or perhaps his time at uh, now defunct Ceres CD back in 2011. So um, look, you, you never know. Barcelona would hopefully have learned their lesson, but look, this team is, is a bad, de- I mean, it's a bad third tier team. There's, I think, you know, I don't know how to totally quantify it, but there's about 60 places between them and Barcelona in the overall league table, but it becomes 80 if you include all the teams they'd be behind in the other branch of the Spanish second tier right, right, or third right. tier. So um, we have got that game to look forward to, uh, not. And uh, we've got Bayern and Leipzig to reopen the Bundesliga on Friday, which is fun. Those games are always good. Uh, always a lot of goals. Liverpool Chelsea in the Prem on Saturday. Um, it's a one of France's weird cup weekends, so not a whole lot going on uh, in Ligue 1. We've got Arsenal United on Sunday, which is my personal opinion for game of the week. Uh, we've got Ajax Feyenoord, so we've got the Classicer uh, before that as well. Um, all in all, pretty solid weekend worth of of games. And uh, you know, next next week midweek is is FA Cup and and league games as well um, before. You know the Champions League returns in that first uh, couple weeks worth of of games in February. So exciting stuff coming up. Um, all of the leagues will be back and active after this weekend. So plenty of soccer and obviously plenty of corner kick content coming up as well. So uh, Caleb, I think that that probably does it for us here this evening. I hope you enjoy the uh, balmy temperatures of California. My house actually ran out of oil. So I'm under, I'm wearing like four layers and oh, no. slippers right now because, and look, in fairness, we could have fixed that problem today. Um, but the difference between same day oil, thick oil refilling and like tomorrow oil refilling, is like $250. So we sort of made a collective decision to just like 
suck it up for like 24 hours and deal with it. So hopefully you're not having any of those problems where the uh, the grass is green and the, and the trees are palm, I guess. No, not not quite. Well, stay warm, I guess. Thank you. I shall. I'll just, I mean, I'll stay warm in my heart by rewatching highlights. I'll, <laughs> by rewatching Aaron Ramsdale push Richarlison away. Richarlison is, was the definition of, of hose mad um, at the end of that game. But with all that said, uh, I have been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Reds. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>